This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys. One from California and one from Massachusetts. Squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Uh, we're glad you could join us today. This is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. And this is Craig Williams from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court, and I have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob? I write the legal blog Watch for Law.com and my own blogs, Law Sites and Media Law. Well, last week, the FBI arrested blogger Kevin Cogill, who's also known as Squirrel of Culver City, California, on suspicion of violating a three-year-old federal uh, copyright law for posting nine tracks from the unreleased and much-anticipated Guns N' Roses album Chinese Democracy on his blog. Well, back in June, Kogel allegedly streamed the unreleased songs on his blog Antiquiet.com, but they were not available for download. The band's lawyers were alerted to the leaks' songs, which led to the RIAA, the Recording Industry Association of America, and the FBI's involvement. According to Kathy Letter, the director of investigations for the RIAA Western Region's office in Los Angeles, she said the arrest of Kevin Cogill is great for the recording industry related to our online investigations. We are very pleased with the FBI's interest and the U.S. Attorney's Office aggressiveness in pursuing this investigation, and we think we'll see more and more of these pre-release cases. Cogill's alleged involvement led to his arrest. If convicted, he's looking at up to three years in jail as well as potential fines. He is the first person in California to be charged under this new federal statute, one of the first anywhere. Uh, According to an arrest affidavit, Kogel admitted to FBI agents that he leaked the songs. He formerly worked for uh, Universal Music in its distribution department, and he told federal agents that he'd received the tracks from an anonymous online source. And he also admitted it on his blog as well, uh, having read through it. But today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to explore the legal issues in this case and the new federal copyright law. On today's show, we have attorney Lisa Brodkin, an entertainment attorney in private practice in Los Angeles. Her practice focuses on representing clients in the fashion, music, and sports industries. In her musical copyright cases, Lisa has represented both copyright holder and alleged infringers. She has represented musical artists and composers such as Metallica and Dr. Dre, and both in litigation against Napster in the late 1990s. She's also represented individuals sued by the RIAA in file-sharing cases and is a member of the RIAA Defense Panel of Attorneys. Ms. Barodkin combines her law practice with active involvement in the entertainment and social media communities. She's a frequent commentator and on Internet law blogs and is a regular contributor to LAist.com, a widely syndicated Los Angeles city blog, and she likes good music. Welcome to the show, Lisa. <laughs> Thank you. Joining us next is attorney Philip Daniels, who is an associate in the Entertainment Media and Communications Practice Group in the Century City office of Shepard, Mullen, Richter, and Hampton. Attorney Daniels advises high-profile talent and companies in the entertainment industry with experience specifically in music, new media, and technology. Mr. Daniels has represented Beyonce, Will Smith, Herbie Hancock, Gwen Stefani, and other well-known recording artists, songwriters, and producers. He's negotiated deals with Yahoo, MSN, Daily Motion and MySpace for the distribution of content 
along with a number of technology infrastructure agreements around the provision of social networking tools and the delivery of content. Uh, welcome to the show, Philip Daniels. Hello. Thank you. Well, uh, I wonder if we could just kind of start with looking at the legal issues in this case. And uh, Lisa Brock, and maybe you could give us uh, uh, kind of a, an overview of, of the law that's at play here. Well, I think this is a wonderful case in a lot of ways. It really crystallizes a lot of current issues affecting a lot of our lives, not just those involved in the entertainment community. Uh, the first thing that I think is extremely interesting is that it is a criminal prosecution. And it's only the second criminal case that has been brought under the law since it was amended in 2005. Um, I think the fact that it's a criminal case really stirs up a lot of people's feelings um, about the role of the criminal justice system in our society. And it is a great example of a strategically brought arrest that is designed to call attention to the fact of the copyright laws and the seriousness of the industries affected by it. Um, so I think that is the most striking um, aspect of this case. I mean, we as copyright attorneys have always known that there is a criminal provision in the copyright law. You know, as a junior attorney um, in the early days of the Internet, I used to send out all these cease and desist notices, you know, saying, please take, you know, take down our tracks from your site or stop, you know, writing about our artists without permission, something like that. And we very naively would say, oh, and by the way, there's a criminal provision that, you know, it could give you liability for X numbers of years in jail. But I had never really seen an actual criminal prosecution under that law. So to me, it was always kind of academic until recently. Then what we've had is the development of very serious enforcement efforts by the entertainment industries that were under attack that, you know, had the effect of being incredibly punitive, but only in an economic sense against individuals. And now finally, we have the first case in California brought under this law. And I don't think that the U.S. Attorney's Office could have picked a more spectacular example to use than a band, Guns N' Roses, who have invested 15 years and $13 million making this record still not out. But, you know, this is where the law comes into play. You know, might doesn't necessarily make right. And there's a lot of issues about right and wrong. But I think that here we have a, a very good choice on behalf of the prosecutors about which case they're going to use as a test case. To me, it's a striking example of criminal intent. He admitted everything, and you know, it opens a public debate about what's the appropriate way to punish what seems to be a very straightforward violation of a fairly clearly written statute. Philip, it's pretty obvious that um, he's going to be in need of an attorney, and he has posted asking for attorneys to represent him, saying that he's mm -hmm. looking for a criminal copyright attorney. You think such a thing exists, and what are what are his possible defenses? Um, well, I mean, it's quite clear he he. I mean, you know, based on based on uh, the facts um, that he he knew what he was doing, um, and he's willfully infringed um, the copyright. And um, 
you know, I think he's going to have a very, a very difficult time uh, defending this. We should, I should just point out, he does have an attorney now. He has posted on his blog that he's being represented by an attorney named David J.P. Kaloyanides. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, and he's uh, he's looking for, uh, I think, PayPal donations on his blog. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting approach. It's kind of poetic justice, you know. It's you know, you take from the market and then you are asking the market to give back, and all the people <laughs> who are critical of the prosecution have the chance to put their money where their mouth is if they think it has merit. Um, there are actually cases in RIAA litigation, in the civil case, um, where there have been private entities willing to fund the defense of individuals. Um, there was a case I was just reading about earlier today in Texas um, that the prosecution is being funded, obviously, by the RIA, and the defense is being funded by network media. Um, so I, I think that good luck to him. You know, I mean, that's what the criminal justice system is for—to put the government to the test, force them to test their evidence. But but is this a case? I mean, I actually first read about this case on, on Craig's blog, and, and Craig uh, Craig I think commented on on the difficulty of finding a, a lawyer schooled uh, in both criminal law and copyright law to, to handle this case. But is this really the kind of case that should be handled as, as a criminal matter? I, I mean, I realize there's a statute on the books that allows it, but as, as a policy matter, is that the right way to come at this? Philip, what do you think on that? Um, I think I think it is. I mean, we need to, to send out a very strong message. Um, I, just, you know, the thing about this case is, there is a di- distinction here between the other RIAA cases that have been brought against individuals. Is that we're talking here about pre-released material, um, you know, and the and the legislation um, specifically provides for this situation whereby um, you know an infringer has has knowingly and willfully distributed a copyright work which is being prepared for commercial distribution. Um, this, you know, this is a clear case of um, protecting the situation whereby, you know, as you mentioned, Guns N' Roses have been working for years on this particular album, and um, there will likely be um, lost sales um, from from basically putting this out before it's been released because most of the money comes from first sales. Um, so I think, you know, this is a very strong message. I think this is an appropriate case to to impose criminal liability in this situation. Does he, do you think that the RIA's tactic in going after uh, this now on a criminal basis is going to send a broader message? I mean, they've gotten really kind of a black eye in some instances for some of the civil actions they've brought in. Well, I think that Philip is right. I mean, this is a very um, extreme case, and the, the fact of it being pre-release material highlights that, you know, it, it's in a different category than the RIA cases. I mean, the RIA yeah. cases present all kinds of issues of proof and causation, and there's a wildly varying array of, of actions that arguably do or don't fit into the statute. You know, making available files by having a copy on your desktop, is that going to subject you to liability as a distributor? You know, this is totally different. I think that this Guns N' Roses case, 
shows, I mean, you have to wonder, how did he get the tracks? You know, clearly you can infer there was some chain of um, wrongdoing and theft that hopefully if he chooses to go to trial will be proven because it's one of those things that in the absence of some sort of, um, you know, wrongdoing, he could not have had the tracks and he could not have released them. And it's very damaging to Guns N' Roses' reputation. And to answer Bob's question, is it a case that should be brought? Well, you know, what are statutes for? If you read this statute, you know, people obviously felt strongly enough about it that they wanted to amend it to get tougher and more explicit. And as between the two cases that have ever been brought under it, I mean, this is, to me, by far the more compelling. I don't know if everyone knows, but the only other time that um, a prosecution was brought under this statute was a couple years ago um, back in, I think, Memphis area, two fans of Ryan Adams, the singer-songwriter, um, basically were arrested and charged for bartering some pre-release tracks. Um, and the defendant pled guilty, and he got eight weeks of house arrest. You know, he pled down to a misdemeanor. In terms of criminal defense, I mean, I think this guy's best defense is insanity. <laughs> I think it's crazy <laughs> to fight it. I mean, he's got a, a, a just an overwhelming um, landslide of public opinion against him. People who are sophisticated in the economics of the entertainment industry, you know, view it as a very unsympathetic case. And surprisingly, you know, I looked around quite a few blogs to get the views of lay people, and a lot of the new media um, people, you know, even those who are very pro-Creative Commons and EFF, uh, feel that, you know, this guy should be nailed. He knew what he was doing. He knew it was wrong. And, you know, that's, that's just the way it goes. Well, is there an enthusiastic fan defense? I mean, one statement he made said, you know, I've waited half my life for a new Guns N' Roses album to come out. Uh, and he, of course, uh, says he, I think he has said that he wasn't aware this was illegal. Uh, we all know that that's, that's not a defense. But, uh, you know, I mean, is it likely that he's going to be able to to uh, sort of rely on, on his enthusiasm here to, to cop a plea of some kind? Well, I don't, I think, I mean, there are, you know, there's also the possibility that the band will, um, will sue, will sue Kogel for, you know, for, for, you know, on the civil liability front, I believe up to, they can get potentially up to 1.3 million in damages, $150,000 per song. I think, you know, I think it's interesting to look at what the band would do here. I mean, there's the criminal, statute criminal aspect here, but then there's also the, the civil liability aspects. And um, I guess the question is, you know, what's going to be the PR exercise? I think that's, I think that's a really good point. Um, one benefit, in a way, of having the federal prosecutors handle it is it takes the pressure off of the band because... There was a huge public outcry and backlash against the artists that I had represented, Metallica and Dr. Dre, for going after Napster, you know, in a case that we look back at now and think, you know, we were, you know, terribly naive in a lot of ways, but it was difficult for the artists to protect their own copyrights without being criticized by their fans. And in this case, what Guns N' Roses reps have said is, well, you know, the government's handling it. We'll let them handle it. 
Why is there such a difference between the way that movies are perceived and the way that music is perceived?、Uh, people tend to be a little bit more respectful of movies and not copying them and distributing, although there's definitely some of that going on, or maybe a lot of it. But it seems like there's more of a violation or a willingness to share music than there is movies. Well, I think、um, technological reasons for that, given that you need、uh, larger pipes to actually,、uh, you know, sh- shuffle the content. Um, across the internet and the bandwidth issues, music has always been、um, very, very easy to to copy and distribute. And I think you know also the the, the studios have kind of had、um, they, they had a warning from what happened with the music industry, and I think、uh, they have done a very good job of you know using、um, using encryption technology as well to to do what they can to prevent. Any leakage of, it, of their material, though it does happen.、Um, so I think there are a number of reasons you know, on a, a technological level, and also having had the experience of seeing what the music industry went through. Why isn't there encryption in music? Well, that's that's、um, you know that that's there's been a huge debate about that because、um, you know it's giving what the fans want, and you know you have. Um, Apple has、uh, iTunes has a specific format,、um, and then you know on Windows Media it's MP3s, and so there's been a lot of debate as to basically、um, getting rid of any encryption, so basically the consumers can hear and play whatever they want on different machines and different devices. So、um, it's a question of balancing the tensions between what the studios, the record companies want. And what the consumers want. Now, I've heard you both say that this case is worse than a file sharing case, and I I can imagine in my mind why you're saying that. But I I wonder if I could ask you just to be more explicit about it. I mean, what makes this advance release case worse than a post release file sharing case? Well, I think that the conduct here really strikes at the heart of. The very fundamental values that the Copyright Act was designed to protect:、um, artistic integrity,、um, the artist's ability to present a finished product in the way that the artist chooses.、Um, that's something that Philip had alluded to with the first sale doctrine.、Um, it strikes at the heart of how a artist. Can recapture its investments because, in this case, they they were preempting、um, a hotly anticipated record that had never been heard by anybody. And to contrast, in the RIA cases,、um, the file sharing cases generally affected you know tracks that were already out, they were already popular, they'd already done most of the initial first sales.、Um, And you know, there are questions about really how much of an effect they would have、um, on the sales of future copies going forward,、um, because the music was already out there in a finished form. But you know, it's interesting that you see artists doing this on their own. I mean, I've been watching. I, I'm a longtime fan of the Pretenders, and they have a new album coming out soon, and they have a website in which they've been. Uh, slowly uh, re- releasing in advance MP3s of, of the songs that are going to be on their album,、uh, you might argue that that's going to 
that would take the wind out of the sails of the release, but you know they must think that it's in some way, uh, in fact, uh, helping to build interest in in the release of the album. Well, that's exactly it. It's in the hands of the artist. So the law says, leave it there. Here's so it's the not a sales issue necessarily. It's hand. a creative control issue, is what you're saying. Exactly. Well, Philip, this brings up the idea of uh, dealing with music uh, musicians that play in clubs and so forth at night in the evenings and uh, live music and bootleg tapes. Uh, I mean, many of the musicians that I've talked to just say that it's rampant that, you know, people can put uh, microphones in their baseball caps, that even the sound guy has his Mac up there recording uh, what the artist is playing and then will distribute it for the sound guy's own uh, profit. How, how do musicians protect themselves when they're out performing? <laughs> A uh, very good question. I mean, that you know, the the genie is out of the bottle. I mean, it, we have we're living in the 21st century, and you know, I think this leads to a, a, a broader a broader issue of um, you know what I, I I touched on earlier about the fact that it's musicians. It's all about strengthening and developing their fan base, and you know, I just. It's very, very difficult to control. Um, you know, one, one, one thought. Um, you know, may, you know, in terms of sort of the, the traditional sort of RIAA file sharing cases. I mean, that is going on. That is rampant, going on all the time. Um, you know, how does one stop that happening? And maybe the answer is in those situations that um, that uh, the authorities don't. Well, the ISPs, the RIA, they don't act as policemen. But maybe the question is of perhaps trying to put in a, um, a collective licensing structure um, whereby um, users pay their ISP a certain fee, which is a license fee for basically um, you know, downloading and sharing files. I mean, maybe that is the answer in those situations. I mean, in this particular instance, the Kogo case, it's a very, very different situation. Um, as we as we've discussed, this is pre-release material. I mean, to use an analogy, it's it's almost like um, going into the candy store and stealing the candy which is already in the store. Whereas, you know, this case of Kogel is stealing the candy even before it's got into the store. I mean, it's far more serious, and it, it can be distinguished in that manner. So, you know, in answer to your question about how we control this, I don't know. Um, but I think that maybe the sensible way to move forward is perhaps to put in place a, a, a collective, um, you know, license. Or a tax on the, the music or the machines that are used to play the music. Correct. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to take a short break at this point in the program. We'll be back in just a few moments to continue our discussion of this case with Lisa Barodkin and Philip Daniels. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs. Jake Craig Williams' blog at MayHavePleasedTheCourt.com. Likewise, Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. 
Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary is a powerful tool. It can turn your plaintiff's case into money at the settlement table. Call the professionals at Skyways Communications at 781-551-9960 to find out more. Online video is one of the best ways to get the message out about your firm. And Legal Channels is where your firm should be. You can have your firm's video produced by TV professionals and seen on Law.com, Legal Talk Network, and YouTube. Find out more at Law.com or LegalTalkNetwork.com. Just click on Legal Channels. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're speaking today with attorney Lisa Brodkin, an entertainment attorney in private practice in Los Angeles, and attorney Philip Daniels, an associate in the Entertainment Media and Communications Practice Group at Shepherd Mullen in Century City. And we're talking about uh, criminal prosecution uh, of uh, a blogger who posted Guns N' Roses songs online. And uh, I, I occasionally, let me interrupt you here for a second here, Bob. I, I wanted to ask uh, Lisa a question. I occasionally do uh, criminal defense work for, in white-collar crime areas and also practice in the copyright area. So if I were uh, Cogill's attorney, I would be trying to cut a deal with the DA saying, look, I'll give you the guy from the studio that leaked uh, in, in return for a lighter sentence. What do you think of that strategy? Absolutely. I mean, this guy is just, crying out to enter into some sort of plea agreement. I mean, rather than fight it uh, and use up all his money and resources, I heard he had to pawn his Les Paul guitar to fund it. I mean, I would be doing everything I could to convince this guy to start cooperating and find out what really happened. What do you what do you think, Philip? Would happen to the person in the studio, assuming that it's someone in the studio that uh, you know took? Do you think the that person would be more uh, reviled than uh, than Kogil? I think uh, Kogil is is the one who uh, who actually posted them on his site. So you don't hold the person that actually you know took it from the uh, Guns N' Roses studio and and gave it to Kogil and well I guess it depends depends on the facts I mean we don't know the circumstances in which he gave it to him where he obtained them I guess if uh, you know there was I guess if the guy knew that uh, Kogil was going to post them on his website then yes I mean we just don't know the circumstances although it's interesting I mean I I do some of my practices in, in media law and, and certainly uh, in, in journalism there's a rule uh, that the journalist isn't necessarily liable for uh, uh, the leak uh, if somebody else is the one who is breaking the law in, in making the leak. I understand there's a, a law here against actually posting uh, the material but uh, I mean does it is there potentially a First Amendment defense here? Is there Are there constitutional issues raised by this in any way? I'm thinking about it, um, you know, you could attack it, you know, as a defense attorney, you could attack it um, in a number of ways since there is so little case law that's been brought under the law. You know, I thought it was interesting in your introduction that you made it very clear that the tracks were not available for download. So you could attack the definition of distribution and argue that um, what he was doing was not distribution. Um, you could 
sort of bring a constitutional challenge to any sort of punishment and say it's excessive. I know that those defenses have been used in similar forms in defense in the RIAA litigation, just saying that some of the verdicts are completely disproportional to the harm alleged in each particular case. So I think maybe not First Amendment, but sure, there's a lot of uh, areas in the statute that would be susceptible to attack and argument. Well, I mean, it at least implicates the issue of a blogger as a journalist. I mean, it comes up uh, in journalism more in sort of the public records context. If, uh, you know, a, a grand jury proceeding is leaked to a journalist, uh, the, the person who leaked it may have violated the law, but the journalist who reports it has not violated the law. Uh, you know, there have been other instances. Uh, it was, uh, up where I live in Massachusetts, there was an instance last year where uh, some some videotapes that were not supposed to have been made were, were leaked. Uh, the, the videotapes were made illegally, but the fact that they were posted by uh, a blogger later on, uh, the blogger was not liable for that. I realize the, the big difference here is there's a statute in play that, that wasn't applicable in the other circumstances. And there's some level, Bob, I think in the context of uh, the public's right to know uh, and, and the basic principle behind journalism is to inform the public. I mean, this is a... Uh, a song that's for profit uh, by a group that's in business, and there's no real public uh, benefit that accrues other than the people that enjoy the song. But there's not a direct public benefit in the same sense of you know there's nothing really newsworthy about releasing these songs. Well, <laughs> beg to differ with that. But well, maybe newsworthy, but not necessarily anything that that uh, I think falls within the public's right to know, like in the sense of kind of a constitutional right to understand what's going on with the government. But let's ask Philip, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think, uh, you know, the, the fact is that um, you know, this was an album that was 15 years in the making. And I, I agree with what you just said, that this is clearly for profit. Um, this isn't like a constitutional right issue that the public needs to know about. And I think this is, you know, this legislation was specifically designed for this. Um, and it's quite clear what it says. And this guy, you know, if the facts are true, it's clearly, clearly uh, willfully infringed. Well, we've just about reached the end of our program, and it's time to uh, wrap up and, and get your final thoughts. So, Lisa, let's start with you and give you kind of a global wrap-up of the discussion that we've been having and what you think perhaps the ramifications and maybe even a prediction about what's going to happen to Cogill, and then uh, wrap up with your uh, contact information so our listeners can reach you. Oh, sure. Well, in a nutshell, I think the Cogill case has shed a lot of light on the um, reality that we are here in 2008 and digital distribution is a very real live force to be reckoned with in the entertainment industry and it shows, you know, the outcry on both sides has shown that, you know, people's point of view has really evolved a lot in the last 10 years. The idea that it's even a question that we have a crime on the books that, you know, the action that falls under it is open to debate, should it be prosecuted or not, um, really should cause the lawyers um, who feel that copyright law is clear and, and, and straightforward, um, you know, to really wonder, well, you know, 
is the law the end of the story, or should we take into consideration the general public sentiment towards this kind of thing? Um, as to what should happen to Cogill, um, I think that having gotten the ball rolling, the government is going to see it through, and they're not going to let it go away. I think it's going to resolve in some sort of a plea agreement, and it will have served its purpose of highlighting the seriousness of this kind of conduct. And, you know, culturally, I think it's opened a very valuable debate about what is the music industry going to do? What are the viable alternatives? And what should musicians do to try to find new revenue streams to react to the reality that this is something that's very capable of happening? Oh, and my contact information is L. B-O-R-O-D-K-I-N at gmail.com for anyone who wants to follow up. And I'm sure there's going to be a link on the Lawyer to Lawyer site about it as well. Great. And Philip? Well, to, to echo uh, Lisa's, Lisa's comments, I think this is uh, you know, a, a, a great test case which brings to a head many of the emotional tensions that, that lie um, between the rights and wrongs of of, you know, of um, criminal liability in this case, um, you know, I think uh, there's a need to to send out a message. I think that this case can be distinguished from the fact that it's pre-release material. Um, you know, and and how how do we strike that balance in today's digital age? Um, where where this sort of behavior is an, an inevitability. Um, what is the correct remedy, remedy for this? And, you know, what, what are the, the public policy issues around this? I think it will be very interesting to see how this plays out. Um, in terms of, of what will happen to Cogill, um, I don't believe that he's going to get a long sentence. I think... As, We've discussed to probably enter in some some form of plea bargain, and in terms of the civil liability aspects, um, I don't think uh, the band will likely um, br bring an action. I think um, it it would just be not the right thing to do. And I think having having this criminal aspect to it se separates the band from being involved in this to an extent. So um, that's my they're my thoughts. And uh, if anybody wants to contact me, I can be reached at pdaniels, P-D-A-N-I-E-L-S, at shepherdmullin.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N.com. And Bob, since you've got some uh, a dog in this fight, we'll give you the last thoughts. <laughs> well, I don't really have a dog. My, actually, what I was just thinking, Craig, is, is I think this week is our... Uh, marks our, our our actual third anniversary of doing this show. We've been talking about our forthcoming third anniversary. Uh, it's just about this week uh, in terms of the timing. We started in the last week of August three years ago, and uh, we, we have been talking about doing a third anniversary show, and we've encouraged uh, listeners to who might want to be part of that show to send us an email at uh, lawyer to lawyer at legaltalknetwork.com with uh, L2L Anniversary Guest in the title of the email. Uh, but I, I'd like to just take a moment uh, to thank the folks at the Legal Talk Network who make it possible for us to do this week after week and 
in particular to single out uh, Kate Kenny, our producer, who does a lot of work in, in lining up the shows and the topics and the guests, uh, and Michael Hockman, who's our audio engineer and makes it all sound really good. So special thanks to, to them. And we also have to thank um, the Legal Talk Network's um, owners, Scott Hess and Luann Reeve, who uh, tolerate us week after week and, and encourage us to, um, to put this show on. And they've just been great in providing us with equipment to be able to do this and um, producing the show for us. So thanks to them as well. And, of course, a thanks to our guests. Right. And we really appreciate their being on the show today. Yep. And remember, you can listen to all of our Legal Talk Network shows on the Legal Talk Network and on iTunes as well. We'll be back next week with another great topic and uh, our anniversary show coming up. So if you're interested, send us an email. We'll get you on the show. Talk to you next week, Craig. See you then, Bob. Happy anniversary. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.